Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to the TalkScript podcast. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Nick Nisi. Hoi, hoi. And Paul Shannon. Howdy. We also have with us today a special guest, Carl Gerton. Hello. Carl's an engineer at SitePen, and today we are going to be talking about WebAssembly. And Carl is kind of our resident expert on WebAssembly. We didn't really know that until we went on our excursion this last April as a SitePen team. And I spent some time kind of picking his brain about WebAssembly and Rust, and Carl's a treasure trove of info. I just want to say I was on this bus too, and I was so tired. I fell asleep, not because of the conversation, but I really regret missing it because I just hear that it was so good from Brian and other people. Like It just sounded like an amazing conversation. That's why I'm here. Also, I gave Nick a sleeping pill. So let's get into our topic for this week. We've got Carl here to talk about WebAssembly. Carl, you did an AMA last week, two weeks ago internally to SitePen about WebAssembly. And I, why don't you just give us kind of the rundown of WebAssembly, its history, kind of what it is. All right. So contrary to prior assertions, I am not an expert. I'm kind of an enthusiastic observer. We give that title freely. You, you're definitely an expert. <laughs> if I'm an Angular expert, you're the WebAssembly expert. Oh, okay. Is that how that works? So the history... I have been following WebAssembly mostly from the Mozilla point of view. I'm a big Mozilla fan. And so if I say things that are like, and then Mozilla did this, it's just because that's my primary like lens through which I view like the whole effort. There's a lot of effort going in from all the vendors. It's just I happen to follow the Mozilla side. So WebAssembly right now is the goal is to run non-JavaScript code in the browser, and to do that in a secure and fast way. And the problem with JavaScript isn't necessarily that it's slow per se, but that it isn't predictably fast, which is kind of a subtle distinction. So you can write a really hot loop in JavaScript, and as long as you are fully monomorphized and you have everything work, and you know exactly what the compiler is doing under the hood, you can get to go fast. But if you get off that happy fast path, the performance can degrade and it can degrade by a lot. And so then you have to know a lot of internal details of the JavaScript runtime and the browser and what to get back to that performance. And so this annoys systems level and low level programmers a lot. So there's been this continuous push to let them run C, mostly C, in the browser. So the most important thing about low-level languages isn't so much the typing as it is the memory access patterns. So with a dynamic language, when you have like an object, that object isn't in the stack, it's not in the fast part, like it's not in the localized part of memory, it's somewhere on the heap. And so when you access that variable, you have to go through a pointer to get to the heap. That lookup jump is the main thing that slows down access patterns around the code, if that makes sense. So by having low-level code tends to put all the stuff into an array, and it's a linear walkthrough memory. So you can do it with arrays in JavaScript to some extent as well. But having that packed linear access allows the processor to guess which memory comes next and to prefetch it before you need it. So the memory is always there, so the processor's pipeline stays full. And that's really what gets you the big speed jumps in lower-level languages. So if you have a dynamic type, you can't predictably know how big an object is going to be. It could be, like, if you have an array, it could have, you know, two integers. It could have an integer and a string. It could have 5,000 nodes because you're using it as a lookup table. Like, it's just completely, it's dynamic, right? And so you can't pack all those into a compact memory representation and linearly walk through it. And so you pay some overhead and slowdown. And that's, from my understanding, the main thing that slows down 
most non you know C C plus plus Rust languages is not so much the typing, but the memory access patterns. So it leads to less predictability, and that over typing is more important. Is having that predictability. Right. So the predictability and the predictability for the keeping the processor pipeline full is the primary thing that makes those low-level languages fast. And so if you want to have that in the browser, which has kind of turned from a document viewer into a runtime, then you need some kind of processing model that can support that and support that without having to emulate it through JavaScript. So there's been a push for many, many years to get something besides JavaScript running in the browser. Isn't that what plugins are for? The initial one was plugins. Going back to the Netscape plugin API in Netscape 3, they had it somewhere on there. You know, you could compile your thing and install it locally, have your C code tied to your operating system, and that would run, that would interact with the browser through a set of APIs. And the problem with that was you had to trust the plugin. Like, the plugin had ran with your user-level permissions, it had full access to the system, and it could do literally whatever it wanted to. On top of that, it had to be compiled for your platform. Correct. It's like any other piece of software you had to install in your system. Yeah. And so that's kind of anathema to the web platform as a whole, where like the main advantage of the web platform over like a native platform or the app store or anything like that is the distribution. Like you can literally go to a website and you are running an application that you don't have to trust well, don't, won't destroy all your Bitcoin wallet on your take your pick on what sensitive <laughs> files you have on your computer. So it's the safety and the trust that gives that installed experience. And plugins just absolutely did not have that. We got a lot of mileage out of the plugins. And so, you know, Microsoft had their own take, which was ActiveX. I won't get into that. <laughs> How do you really feel? It was quite popular, though. <laughs> and so plugins had a good run. You had Flash. Like, Flash was a, actually a very big success as far as a platform goes. But you ha- like everyone's trying to get like their plugin installed so that you can then build on their platform, they can control it and all that. And so that kind of ended with uh, Steve Jobs and the iPhone saying, there's no flash on the iPhone. You know, that was the nail in the coffin for the plugin. The browser vendors had been unhappy with plugins for a long time because they ran in the shared memory space of the browser. And if the plugin would crash, the browser would crash. And any security problems in the plugin was a security problem in the browser, too. So the browser vendors were unhappy with the plugins, but they kept it up because that's what they had, and they didn't want to break the web. That's kind of what they'd like to do. So once the iPhone killed plugins, there was this void of how can we make native code run in the browser? And Google made the first like real public stab at this in Native Client, which was a platform for running basically C programs with a... SDK called Pepper. And the idea was that you could compile your C++ code into something that worked and that would be platform independent and you could compile your code against the Pepper API and have access to all this in-browser stuff and get your games running and your apps and whatnot. And it was would be great for Chrome OS. That was kind of like, mm-hmm. as far as I understand, the mindset behind it. Right, right. And so they did their big DevRel push and so people looked at it and was like, this is pretty cool. But the other browser vendors looked at it, again, now coming from the Mozilla perspective, and they're like, we're not going to adopt Pepper. Like Native Client, they were kind of not super thrilled with, but Pepper was what they absolutely didn't want because there was no spec for it. Like there's no public definition. So it was basically whatever code was out there was what it was, and there couldn't be an independent implementation. They couldn't guarantee that it would work and it wouldn't change over time, that type of thing. It's like, it's someone else's API that has no standards, right? Like, do you really want to build your stuff on that? It sounds like a a fly-by-night project that somebody put together, and then they proposed it. It was a real legit effort, and they had good reasons for all of it. And the other browser vendors looked at this big API, and they're like, no, we're not going to adopt that. I mean, it sounds like it was kind of taking them back to the plugin paradigm where you've got Microsoft with ActiveX, you've got Netscape with the Netscape API, had this gone forward without a spec, right? You've got one vendor controlling the API, and they've got their own API without... I'm not convinced that was their intent. I think why we're curious is because if they really thought Pepper was a good idea, even though it had no specs, you could have just put up a working group around it and then set up specs and things like that. 
Right. There was, as far as I know, discussion about doing that. I'm not a browser vendor myself, but like from reading in the internals of all the emails, like all the browser vendors kind of have a back and forth relationship with each other, and they have kind of you know there's discussions. And my understanding was nobody outside Google wanted to pick up this API. I did see that as well. I had no idea why, but I did see that. People were like, this is a little too hot for me. Also, I think that you should become a browser vendor and we'll have the Carl browser. No, that would be great. Carl 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> Just there please don't be Chromium. <laughs> I'll cancel in a couple of years and switch to Chromium under the hood. The great thing about native client or especially portable native client with a Pepper API was that you didn't, it wasn't platform dependent. Like you could compile it one time and have it sandboxed and be pretty sure it wasn't going to touch all your stuff. And so it was much closer in vision to like the web as we wanted it. It's closer to the initial vision of the plugin, right? That you could visit the site and it would automatically run this fan, like AutoCAD or Figma (laughs) or like something like, like you had this big application you could run without any install process and it'd be amazing. As far as I know, I only did a couple things, but it seemed to work. It's just the size of the Pepper platform was not something the other browser vendors wanted to pick up. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so as kind of a counter move, the Mozilla guys, Mozilla Labs specifically, and I believe Dave Herman, adopted the worse is better approach and introduced ASM.js, which is kind of a hack in that... It isn't really a platform. It's more of a specific way of writing JavaScript that guarantees mm. that you're turning integers. So if you convert in JavaScript to a... You use a bitwise operator on a number in JavaScript, it implicitly converts that to a 32-bit integer. It's guaranteed by the spec. And so by putting that single bar, which is binary XOR, or binary OR, zero, that's a forced coercion to a 32-bit integer. And by having that, <laughs> you could guarantee that the program was taking in and returning integers. And by just making a big array buffer, that can be your, quote, memory of your machine. Like, you have guaranteed entry and exit for your numbers. And what that does is that by that, having that guarantee of, like, that really constrained API, the compiler can guarantee the inputs and outputs and do all the linearization and inlining and predictability that predictable memory access stuff I talked about and make your code predictably fast. Now, and the reason for using the bitwise or was because this was before array buffers right. were a thing in JavaScript. Right. We're talking ES3. Yes. For all of our listeners out there, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, we didn't have fancy features like array buffers, right? <laughs> yeah. Array buffers are actually pretty amazing. Makes me feel old. Sorry, Carl. I could just imagine somebody going, why wouldn't they just use an array buffer? Well, we didn't have them. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fine. Like, And array buffers is kind of an extension of this effort. That was like the initial thing. And they proved it out and they got, I believe, Epic or someone. They got a couple of game engines running on it to show that they could, in fact, compile C to ASM.js. They got Doom running on it, didn't they? It wasn't Doom. It was like it was Quake. Quake-like engine. It wasn't Quake. It wasn't either, but it was one like it. It was the engine behind it. Yeah, yeah. Was it Unreal Tournament? That was a later demo. Okay. Um, the, I think it was Fortnite. <laughs> it was Overwatch. I believe. They could only run it on Windows. <laughs> but so, anyway, so they got this thing running. They got the demo running. They showed it was possible. And what that did was that by kind of getting it in the back door of having – and that was still valid JavaScript. And so all the other browser vendors had to do was to optimize their engine to support that. So Emscripten is a giant project that was kind of supporting this and what made the C to ASM.js compiling work. The thing about it is it's by taking the incremental approach. This stuff could run in everyone else's browser, and it wasn't as fast, but it worked. And there was a small path to change that you could get like one developer for like three or four months, and you could be supporting ASM.js, right? Like the incremental approach is what made it work. And so after they had gotten this ASM.js thing, and I know SpiderMonkey had a dedicated module, and I know JavaScript Core had a dedicated module. I think Chakra Core had one too, and V8 did not. V8's the one that didn't specifically implement Mm. an ASM module, I believe. And so once everyone had this feature and they were like, okay, this is a good idea, the next step was, okay, this kind of works, but it's still JavaScript. Like, since we can run C in the browser now, we can turn this into something that's actually a platform. 
basically we can do better than this. Right. Now that we yeah. all kind of agree on what the starting point looks like, how do we make this better? And Wasm is a direct descendant of that. And so Wasm itself is a stack-based virtual machine, which basically it means that the machine code for it is very compact. It's more compact than a register-based virtual machine would be. And it only works on numbers. Wasm, as it exists in browsers today, is a numbers-only thing. And so there's 32-bit integers, there's 64-bit integers, there's 32-bit floats, and there's 64-bit floats. That's it. There's nothing else. And so you can do a set of oper- – you can add, subtract. It literally is assembly. It is literally assembly, and all you have is numbers. And so, again, it's coming from ASM, right? So ASM just had 32-bit integers because of the bitwise or trick, right? Well, and at the time, there weren't a lot of 64-bit computers floating around. Yeah, at the time of ASM. And ES3 only had 32-bit integers as well. So, And there's problems in JavaScript because of the 64-bit. Yeah, you're limited to 53 bits in yeah, JavaScript. Yeah. So basically, ASM is a specification for an abstract virtual machine that can basically add, subtract, multiply, and divide numbers. And from that abstract representation... The JavaScript compiler infrastructure, there's a whole set of compilers inside the JavaScript engine, mm-hmm. can take that abstract representation and turn it into machine code very, very easily. So because it's so low level and because it's uniformly typed and all that, the browser compiler doesn't have to do any optimization or any thought process. It just translates the abstract representations to concrete ones, and it can do that very, very quickly, basically as fast as it downloads. And this is now in Wasm. Okay. So Wasm is the binary representation of machine code and kind of a machine that runs it, an abstract machine that runs it. And so it's a linear chunk. You have a chunk of memory, and you can do as much number adding and reducing and manipulating as you want. And that's, at its core, what ASM is at the moment. That basically sounds like what a shader does. Can we run this on my graphics card now? It sounds like a pretty reduced set of instructions. It's a very reduced set of instructions. I don't know if it runs on a graphics card. Paul's like, I'm going to get my Bitcoin miner running in Wasm on my graphics card. Well, I, yeah. I mean, if somebody's browsing <laughs> the web, they're not using their graphics card. So it's free money. Well, they might be if they're you know doing some SVG or anyway. <laughs> so that's the kind of long and meandering history of Wasm as it stands. When I've been talking to Paul and Nick about this over the last couple of weeks, because I've been really excited about this episode, we were kind of talking about the history of Wasm. And I think I missed where Asm.js went, like, they didn't really abandon it, but like, then they started developing Wasm. I didn't really catch that. And so, like, I vividly remember when they compiled, quote-unquote compiled, I guess it is compiling, the Unreal Engine or whatever it was, to Asm.js and had it running. I mean, it was just like a breakthrough. And so I think I conflated like, oh, yeah, well, that's just a... Because when we're talking about WebAssembly and what you... I think you and Paul just hinted at it or even said it, something about a reduced instruction set in Wasm. And I think I conflated reduced instruction set with only using integers in ASMJS, right? And never made that transition. So Wasm is this thing unto itself, correct? Correct. All right. And Wasm doesn't have any, aside from being kind of the origin story, Wasm in its core doesn't have any direct reference to JavaScript. There's a JavaScript embedding that's specifically designed to be an embedding, so there can be other kinds of embeddings. And so that's kind of the tie into the browser at the moment. But at its core, Wasm is just a chunk of memory and instructions for adding numbers. And Wasm can't access the DOM, right? Correct. So you still have to have like JavaScript glue to to tie what's coming from Wasm to something that you might want to update on the page? Okay, so that's an ongoing... So <laughs> Nick, you just, you just jumped way ahead. It's kind of... It's, Nick, it's kind of jumping that's ahead. worm. So what's there it, right now is the MVP, and it's useful for doing some stuff, but it's not useful for, like... You won't be able to build stuff without JavaScript until additional capabilities are added to the spec. Most specifically, we need to be able to have reference types, which are kind of opaque pointers into the thing that represent the DOM objects. And so eventually you'll be able to work directly with the DOM. There's a kind of 
several phases to that process. And so it will eventually be the fastest way to interact with the browser, but we're not there yet. That's crazy. And that's like a DLL, uh, right? No. Like you attach a bunch of things Paul, to... I mean, right? A DLL. Would you stop that? <laughs> I'm just oh. trying to reinvent Windows, that's all. I know you are. I know you are. All right, so you've got this... They need references, they need... They need references and they need the spec to be added as a module. So in order to make Wasm do something useful besides heating up your computer, you have to add <laughs> capabilities to it. And so Wasm, in order to be secure, doesn't do anything by itself. What you can do is you can then add functions into the memory that the different pieces that you've compiled can call out. And so by adding you know, the ability to return a number back into JavaScript, you can manipulate the DOM and stuff like that, right? So yeah. it's the host environment, in this case the browser, puts capabilities in, and the WebAssembly can then call those functions to get out. So like a library almost. Right, it is like a library. And so a lot of the future additions to Wasm will depend on these libraries, and they're all treated as modules. And so if you think of them in like JavaScript modules, like they're imported kind of conceptually the same way. And so you get this bundle of functionality that's given to you, and it's not just inherently there in the system. You have to actually you know, be provided by the host, and that's part of the security model. Now, are we able to do like a post message or something like that currently to get outside of our Wasm runtime? Yeah, how do you communicate between Wasm and JS? So right now you currently. pass a function, <laughs> and if you want to pass something out of it, you have to have an array buffer. So like, let's say you want to get a string out of your Wasm, right? You have to write the bytes into the array buffer and then return that array buffer as making a function call. Then the JavaScript side reads that array buffer, converts it to a JavaScript string, and then does whatever you want with it. Hmm. So it's very low level. Yes. Anything that's not a number has to be serialized or deserialized to a set of numbers. Yeah. Like everything has to go into an array buffer. It literally is assembly. That's kind of cool. My next question is, JavaScript runs on the JavaScript virtual machine, some sort of virtual machine, right? Like it's there's a runtime interpreter, et cetera, right? Yes. How does Wasm relate to that? Okay, so JavaScript engines consist of a set of compilers. The highest level is usually the interpreter. Then there's a the mid-level speed up that kind of compiles the whole thing. And then there's the hot code path super optimized compiler that is only done if it's worth it, right? Okay. Because... Wasm is so predictable, they basically add a shim on top of this lowest level optimizing compiler that directly bypasses everything and goes down to that level. And there's not a lot of speculation, it just goes to the lowest level immediately. It just feeds it. Yeah. And so that's basically how it works. So it's kind of running on the JavaScript engine, but not exactly. It's using the JavaScript compile infrastructure because an engine converts human-readable code to machine code and runs sure. it. And yeah. this is converting machine-readable code to machine code and running it. So it's using the same kind of got pieces, it. and that's why it's got kind of got success, because it's reusing stuff that there already exists, and no one has to do this from scratch, right? That's why they did it. Okay, but it's not JavaScript. It's just using the internals of the engine. Right. Got it. Cool. The only place that I've ever seen Wasm, at least anywhere advertised today is I've been playing chess online with some of my buddies on Discord. And uh, the Lee Chess engine has a Wasm component. It'll analyze games, Stockfish plus 10. So it'll analyze up to 10 moves ahead. If you want to get any further analysis, you have to actually send it to the server. But it's actually kind of cool to watch that working in the browser. Like there's this chess engine that's... a actual formidable opponent against against you know like grandmaster level chess players and it's running in the browser it can run on ios in fact lee chess's mobile app it's a hybrid app it just runs a web browser and you're using essentially this mostly the same code from the lee chess web page and so it runs wasm in the mobile app as well for the stockfish thing. It's fascinating that it can do this, but what's kind of the hope for where Wasm's going to go? Okay, so there's a lot of dreams with Wasm, right? So Wasm represents kind of 
assembly code and a starting point in infrastructure. The eventual kind of dream is for you to be able to write whatever language you want and run it on a browser. Like that's the end kind of goal dream. So like COBOL. <laughs> so like COBOL or Python yeah. or Lua or te- like F Sharp. Take your pick. Right, like right. The idea is to be able to run whatever you want and have it like work reasonably well. In the much, much shorter term, the goal is to get references into the browser, specifically so you can directly access the DOM. So the problem we have when you're writing like some kind of DOM manipulation code in Wasm is that you have to jump through JavaScript to get to the DOM. And that process of deserializing whatever you want into something JavaScript can understand, then having the JavaScript do something, and then going to the DOM kind of kills most of the performance gains you would get for writing direct DOM access Wasm code. And so I participate in the Rust community, and the Rust community is very enthusiastic about Wasm, and they think they can be like the dominant language for Wasm, and that's how they're going to get Rust out to the world, because they're, you know, they're excited about their language, right? I have spoken to Rust people, and yes, they're very excited about their language. And they're excited about Wasm, because Rust actually has an excellent Wasm story, but I won't get into that, because it's not a Rust thing. But when I have seen like virtual DOM implementations, which is the kind of thing you would expect, because you know, we all want our VDOMs to be faster, and the performance gains are not what you would naively think. It's like I've seen like 10 to 15% over React, which other VDOM implementations just get natively in JavaScript. And the problem is the overhead in that jump. So once we can get direct access to like reference types and web IDL and direct access to the DOM, then you'll start seeing the kind of performance gains that you would expect for a more predictably fast language interacting with the DOM. Okay, so, but you and I, we talked about something like debugging WebAssembly and where it's at right now. How is somebody going to write Rust and then identify a problem in their DOM access and then debug all of that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they don't, like... <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, this is a problem, right? That's a problem for somebody else, Paul. Oh, good. As things exist right now, like, the example of a chess engine is an excellent example because... It's kind of standalone, and so there's a lot of numeric crunching. It has to look forward to all its positions, and then it just delivers a small like payload of the data output, like yeah. what the move's going to be. It's a perfect use case for the current generation of Wasm because you know all it has to do is crunch numbers and then return a small value. It doesn't have to go this back and forth jumping over the JavaScript bridge to manipulate the DOM all the time. Like, And so all the applications that you see in the wild, most specifically like AutoCAD actually runs in the browser now. And you'll see games, and the games seem like there'd be a lot of data coming up. But you know, once they get the render instructions into the array, they just have to transfer the array over. And so they can get the WebGL to draw stuff. Yeah, a lot of audio codecs and transforms, too, like any number-heavy thing. So it's like computation numeric-heavy stuff, and so it's not the crossing back and forth. And so the great thing about all these applications is that they are fundamentally number-crunching, and they run the same inside the browser as outside the browser. And so you don't have to have this debugging, like, what does the DOM do? It doesn't matter because you're not talking to the DOM. And so the way they debug stuff right now is you just run your binary on your host and debug it using GDB or take your pick. And, like, that's how you debug it. And they just assume it's going to work in the browser. So the Rust guys who do want to do, like, the VDOM stuff, they just kind of build small things. And it's they're more like tech demos than anything else. And that's kind of how they're working on it. So they want to get all the stuff in the spec, but it's not there yet. Right now, it's just, again, number crunching. So by the time you get to debugging things that are connected to other things, which we haven't mentioned, but WASI is that thing that connects other things in some way, right? Yes. <laughs> things connecting to So things. once you get to that, are you emulating an endpoint or are you doing a live debug somehow? Like, how does that translation going to work? It doesn't right now. Like, as far as I know... <laughs> Well, that's there fine. is no debugging but story. Everybody has their own like wants for WebAssembly, so you can just imagine it and then say anything at this point. <laughs> just make something up, Carl. So all the development is done on GitHub, and there's the WebAssembly like GitHub organization, and you can find every single spec and all of what they say. And like, there is a debugging story there. There is like it's a high priority item for them. Like, it's not like they're just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Just imagine it'll be great. Right. Just use GDB until then, you know? Yeah. They actually do have goals. I'm just saying like, as it exists right now, this is my experience with like playing around with it and what people are actually doing. Yeah. And I'm just prodding you a little bit because, you know, I hear that, you know, WebAssembly is going to 
you know, you can compile any language to the browser, but maybe in the next decade. But I don't see that really happening. Oh, it's the dream. Yeah, it's the dream. <laughs> That's the dream, right? Like, this is the vision. It's not going to happen soon. Yeah, just like at some point I thought Python might take over JavaScript as being like the language of the web, but that never happened either. Well, that actually, that's actually a very much better reason for that. So when you have a garbage collected language and you have two garbage collectors, like if you ever share objects between them, you can't be sure that the object is there or not. So it's really hard to integrate multiple garbage collectors. One of the tricks that Wasm did was it doesn't have garbage collection built in to the spec at all. It's one of those the things that's coming up in the future, but it's not directly built into the spec. And so there isn't conflicts with the host garbage collector and the JavaScript garbage collector. Like there is no garbage collector in Wasm. And, and once there is, it'll be the JavaScript garbage collector to prevent that cyclical dependency confusion. Is that what shared array buffers solve? It doesn't necessarily solve it because you're still going to have to access the DOM and the DOM is a global. So, like, there has to be a solution for garbage that reference counted or reference or cycle or whatever you want to call it. Partially live, partially dead, who knows who's in charge state. There was efforts to put Python in, and that was kind of the stumbling block is Python's garbage collector versus JavaScript's. What you're talking about, having two garbage collectors or a garbage collected and a reference counted language, so to speak, or reference counted runtime. That's one of the big reasons why you had the uh, memory leaks you had in, in Internet Explorer. When you've got, you know, two things vying for the object, your reference count goes up one because the garbage collector has it. Well, the garbage collector can't collect because the reference counts up and it just stays in memory infinitely. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem. And we've seen it for sure. IE6, IE8, you know, that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> So it's not anywhere near replacing JavaScript as the language of the web or anything like that yet. Is that its goal? I guess, what is its main goal? So the stated main goal for Wasm is portability and security. Okay. So the way I think of it is if you think of the browser as a platform, like you know Windows or Mac or whatever, or Android, the browser kind of is its own platform. And this is eventually going to be like the runtime of that platform. And so if you think of like the JVM, where there's a bunch of languages that live on top of the JVM, but they all share the kind of the core JVM concepts, mm-hmm. it's that same concept. It's like you have you know, WASM module, and it can be written in whatever language you want, but it's going to run on all the platforms and all the things, because this is the platform it runs on. Instead of compiling to bytecode, it compiles to... I mean, WASM is the bytecode. Okay. WASM's near assembly in concept, at least. I'm just wondering how this will change like web development in the future. I'm wondering like will tools like I don't know, Webpack, will they rewrite themselves in Rust eventually someday? And then when I have problems with that, will I have to also be a Rust expert to debug my JavaScript? And to answer that, the question is possibly. I think DevTools are actually an excellent place for Rust to be as a Rust fan, but because of the performance, like the performance is actually really good. And it makes like one of the things that Wasm promises is that like node when you distribute a node module that it'll run on all your platforms without you having to have a C compiler installed and compile the plugin you know that whole mess of native node stuff that'll go away assuming Wasm and Wasi works so like that's kind of the promise but yeah you'll have to if you're debugging something you'll have to know Rust to do it just like you would have to you know know Kotlin to debug your new Android stuff versus Java or versus Groovy for your Ant scripts or whatever have you. If it's compiled in Wasm, can we reverse compile it, decompile it, or whatever you want to call it back into any other language? Maybe. I mean, that's what LLVM does when it builds, right? You, you build it to the LLVM. IR, yeah. Yeah, thank you, IR. And then it builds it back out to another target. Right. And so it'll depend on how much of the information is left in the Wasm module. I expect most production stuff will be like symbol stripped. And so you won't be able to get like names and stuff like that, but you'll be able to get like control structures maybe. But that'll depend because the machine is very low level. It's a stack based virtual machine. I think those tend to lose code structure in the compilation process, but I am not an expert on decompiling that kind of thing. Yeah. If it's optimized, I can see that like you'll get static analysis, removing loops that are always false. But yeah, I could see that it would be challenging to disassemble into a human-readable format. 
What I think is really cool is the idea of sandboxing, being able to actually define like what your application has access to. And so like I make a lot of jokes about DLLs and things like that, but <laughs> one of the huge problems with DLLs and plugins in general is that they run in user space. So you as a user, whatever you have access to, so does that application in DLL. But it works a little bit different, at least the plans are for it to work a little bit different with Wasm and Wazi, right, Carl? Correct. So because of the restrictive nature of the machine and because everything gets passed in as a module, all the native stuff that's going to... So in order to get a C program to do something useful, you actually have to usually talk to the operating system. So if you want to print something to the screen, you have to call... I can't remember the system call this, but you have to make a system call into the kernel and the kernel will put the painting to the screen on your behalf. And this is mediated by the libc or the C API is not the only way to do it, but it's the normal way to do it. Like, you know, Go has its own kind of indirect interaction, but if you don't have a team the size of the Go team, then basically you rely on libc to do this abstraction for you. <laughs> and so in Wasm, there is no libc because there's nothing there. And so in Scripten, in, in order to compile things like the Unreal demos and the Erlikton engine and all the other stuff, all the other applications... They're almost all going through Inscription, which has its own kind of faked out libc library in JavaScript. So there's like pieces in JavaScript, there's pieces in the Wasa module they export, and they fake file system access by using, it's not WebSQL anymore, it's um, anyway, uh, the, the relational yeah. DB API. Yeah, something like that. I'm spacing. Something DB. What Inscription does, though, is it emulates libc and plus a couple extra libraries. And that lets like applications and games compile and work. And it does it through this JavaScript bridge. So when they're doing Wasm, Mscript is already there and it works and it kind of can compile to Wasm, kind of. But they wanted to, again, do better because Mscript is kind of a hack, like on the top of a hack, on top of a hack. It's interesting, but not something that you want to build. Like, But we're supposed to trust this and not debug the, the compile code directly. <laughs> Mscripten was originally written to go from C to asm.js, right? Correct. And it did a bunch of hacks to make that whole thing work. Right. And so now we have this whole new platform. Do we really want to go through all of Mscripten's hacks just because that's what works right now? And the answer is absolutely not. So Wasi is kind of the libc for Wasm. Got it. And it shows up as a module, so it's like any other kind of Wasm module, in that the host injects a set of functions into the namespace and you can call them but because they're injected by the host they're not necessarily there like they're not always there so if the host doesn't want you reading a file it just doesn't give you the function to read a file or it boxes that access right you can say only these files for instance like in order to do that it will give you a handle to a file you can do so if you don't have a handle to somewhere outside your local folder you literally can't write it because the only thing you can pass into this write file thing is the handle you have, and the handle is scoped to only the folder that the browser knows that you're touching. So again, you can't escape your little sandbox and get out and steal all everyone's data from the rest of the system. And so this is capability-based security. It's a fairly well-understood model. And the idea is that they can produce, like, if everything works and there's no bugs, that they can give you completely safe access to this whole platform and build a whole ecosystem on top of it. So finally I can run in root. <laughs> Again, I'm in the Rust community. So there is an experiment, a couple like toy operating systems that will run your Wasm module in the kernel space, not just in root, but in kernel space. So you don't have to cross the kernel boundary at all. And that's like, you can do whatever you want. There's no controls at all. But that's dependent on the security of the Wasm host that's running in that kernel. So I think it's a clever, it's a fun idea because there's overhead, by the way, in converting between a user space application and the kernel. And so this potentially could get rid of that, but you have to absolutely trust the security model. And again, they're toy OSs. I was going to say, isn't that a little, like you said that and immediately I'm like, red flags are going off in my head. Like, this is scary. <laughs> Right, but the whole point of Wasm is supposed to be that it is secure. Like that's like the fundamental like goal. And so unless someone's like if someone screws up their coding and has a bug and there's a security leak, then there's a security leak. But the goal of the system, the design of the system is that you could do something like that and conceivably have it work. 
I'm just thinking like, you know, I'm playing chess and there's a kernel panic and it's because <laughs> it's because I probably move. wouldn't want to run your chess game in your kernel. I know, but I'm just saying, you know, like I move my pawn to the wrong place and put the other guy in checkmate and it bombs my system. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what's good about this is that this uh, sandboxing is a key feature of WebAssembly and WASI and all of that stuff. And unlike Flash, which was primarily on rendering something, and then security and sandboxing felt like a secondary item that wasn't paid very much attention to, even though I'm sure it was, but it just felt like there was issues with, this is a major feature of this WASM stuff. Right. And like it is a goal, and it is an, actually an immediate goal of a lot of embedders. Yeah, the Rust community is involved. That makes me feel better. <laughs> well, the Rust community is involved, and they're very big on the whole safety thing. But aside from the browser vendors who have... Most of the stuff that's running in the browser today is existing programs that have been adapted to run in the browser. There's only a handful of like new programs written to run, to run the browser in Wasm. Like Figma is one, which people might be familiar with. But there are very few applications like that that aren't kind of just previously existing and then kind of ported over. Whereas I think a lot of the new applications that are specifically written for Wasm will actually come from the functions as a service space. Because you have this like very fast compiling virtual machine. There's no like the startup time for it is extremely low. Performance is predictable. And if it's secure, then you don't have to worry about like this very fast running module getting into every other customer's stuff. So you can kind of just ship like you can have your, you know, Lambda in the cloud or whatever, or your computation at your edge computing as in Fastly or Cloudflare. And you can literally run all your customers code really, really fast, basically on demand per request using Wasm, and it'll work. The early adopters of Wasm, and specifically for new stuff in Wasm, I think it's going to be the functions of the service crowd, and Fastly and Cloudflare are actually pushing Wasi very hard. They're kind of the lead implementers on that. Wow. So you said Figma uses Wasm? I know that they at least use Mscripten. I believe they're compiling to Wasm now. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, see, that's always what I've kind of known Wasm to be is about speeding up the browser, but also the other idea of like pushing JavaScript out more to the system level and doing things like replacing the need to compile, you know, run your compile step for node programs when you do an install for your particular binaries for people that still use binaries and things like that. Just kind of people talk about like, hey, any language then can compile to JavaScript and all of that, but Every time I see like real use cases and, and things like that, it, it appears that it's oftentimes the opposite in that, you know, Wasm is just a corner case for speeding things up in the browser, but it's also a way to kind of push out, you know, this JavaScript-ness to system-level stuff and other things out in the world. So if the JavaScript-ness consists of like safety, system safety pushing out to the world, yes. Or running untrusted code because of the memory safety that... This allows so, like it's the memory safety, right? Like that's yeah, the models that JavaScript tends to use. Yeah, like it's the same goal, like that you just don't trust the like. It's more in line with how we live. Our like so, you know, in the seventies, you were completely trusted that it was you running the code, right? But now we run all kinds of code, like in the browser specifically, that we don't trust the people who give the code, and we just expect the browser security to protect us from all this arbitrary code from taking over our systems and it works for the most part for the most part right right because there is the own to own sure. and all that sure but this is the same concept like the safety concept applied to lower level languages in that you can have like the like backends or functions as a service is the exact is kind of in my opinion the ideal scenario for this type of thing where you have this small function you want to run a lot and that you don't trust you as the person running the platform don't trust any of your customers and that's okay, and that's what that is. And so some of the vendors that are doing this are using JavaScript engines to bootstrap. Others, like there is a lower-level code generation hosts for Wasm that have no JavaScript relations at all. It only runs Wasm. So they're kind of experimental at this point. There's like at least three or four of them, and I don't, don't know of a clear front runner. But there are runtimes for Wasm that have no JavaScript in them at all. That's interesting. Do you think we'll get Wasm on a chip, or is there already Wasm on a chip then? 
I would think that we might have in hardware instructions to you know maybe convert to whatever the chip's native internal microops are. I'm not sure. So for our listeners, we are a TypeScript podcast. Are there any applications today? When I say applications, I mean uses for Wasm with TypeScript that are especially advantaged to TypeScript. Like so, right now, this day, if I wanted to reach for you know Wasm in the browser, it would be to speed up some kind of computation engine. So if mm-hmm. I was doing a chart rendering, or if I was doing a 3D demo, or something like anything that involves very heavy computation and not interaction with the DOM, sure, it'd work great. But I don't know of anything. TypeScript specific that would come into play. So I don't know. I haven't used AssemblyScript, but I've been meaning to check it out. Do you know anything about AssemblyScript, Carl? I do not. I'm in the Rust camp. Go Rust. That's totally fair. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think James wrote a blog about it. So we have that on the old blogs at SitePen. Yeah, the idea of writing something new, if you already know TypeScript, AssemblyScript might be a good place to check things out. If you don't want to learn Rust. You know, there's a lot of fans of Rust. That was another discussion that I had with Carl on a bus ride. It might have been the same discussion. And I've been meaning to check out Rust, but I haven't. Would you say you're a bit rusty? Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) There's no Rust because I haven't even taken it out of the box. That was a really bad pun, Nick. That's why I'm here. Brian's puns aside, AssemblyScript is probably a good place to start. Carl, if knowing what you know... If you had to learn like a lowish, high level language, between... <laughs> lowish, high level. All well, right. I mean, because so it's medium? mixed terms. It's not Java. It's not a scripted language. It's not JavaScript. So if you only know JavaScript and you had to learn something like Rust or Go or C or C plus plus, which one would you pick? Well, specifically for implementing something in the browser like this, for going to Wasm, right? Yeah, I would take a serious look at AssemblyScript because it's closest to what I knew. Otherwise, like having looked at like the leading stuff for you know the Go and the C sharp, the Rust community is very very much further along. I could see myself writing something and deploying something in Rust, and that have not having compromises. And the advantage of doing it in a very level level language like Rust is that the Wasm because it's just a bunch of numbers. Anything you add above like what you need to, so like in Go, like the garbage collector. Anything you write in Go will have that garbage collector as part of your Wasm module, and you can't necessarily get rid of it just because it's part of the runtime of the language. So if your goal is to have something load and load fast and run fast, then you're going to spend you know a megabyte on the runtime, I think. I don't know what the current number is, but it was two megabytes last time I looked. I assume they've improved it since then. And whereas like I have seen Rust stuff delivered in under 5K, Rust Wasm modules, and it's specifically because it's such a low-level language. So my inclination would be for Rust because I think it's more accessible than C or C++, and it will give you the runtime stuff that you want. The community is very enthusiastic about it. There are lots of tutorials. And yeah, it's a good time to learn Rust. Like I've been saying for years that it's not a good time to learn it. And finally, with the, the recent set of changes in the language and the async await coming in, and the IDs actually being decent, it's actually not a terrible time to learn Rust now. That's a glowing recommendation. Not a terrible time to learn Rust. <laughs> <laughs> Not a terrible time. It's one of those, like, I think it's going to get better in the future. Like, the IDs will get better. Async await will finally land, and we'll actually be able to write stuff. I think it'll, it'll be significantly better. Like, if you have the opportunity to wait, wait. If you're not pushed to learning it, you can wait a year or two, and you won't miss anything. But we're past the early adopter phase and into the more exploratory phase. We're past the pioneer phase and into the early adopter phase. Well, we should put it that way in terms of like Rust adoption and where it is as a language and how good it is. That's a really fair assessment, yeah. It's no longer a harebrained idea. It's an actual... I could legitimately recommend Rust for production and not feel embarrassed about it. How's that? That's a good start, you know? Like, <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> everything comes from production. Right, and so it's one of those, like, yeah, people have been doing it for years, but it's kind of been like, will it be supported? Will it change yeah, over time, yeah. right? I feel that, you know, four years into this post 1.0, we're finally getting to the part where I'm like reasonably confident that nothing's going to break in the immediate future. And like, I could give this to someone and not have it blow up on me and come back to me. So, <laughs> Well, Mozilla is a big pusher of Rust or contributor or whatever you want to call them. Yes. As long as Mozilla stays around. They're only like, I think 40% of the core team now, 30% of the core team now. It's Mozilla's driving actively driving themselves out of being in that position. They want it to be a community thing. They do really well in those types of projects. 
you know, handing back to the community rather than just absorbing a community. Yep. So yeah, props to Mozilla. Please stay around. You're the only other browser. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we want to talk about some future. Like, where do we see this? So, I mean, like short term, again, I expect it to be like the functions as a service stuff and then maybe plugins for like databases and stuff. Medium term, we will get functional references and web IDL and we'll start to see like VDOM implementations. I think it's the next kind of level. And then past that, it depends on when all the rest of the proposals come in. So like I could see a VDOM implementation existing and being useful and you just assume that the whole thing works, right? Like you don't debug the VDOM part, you just debug your code above it, right? But making that jump from like being like a core thing you depend on to being like your primary production code base that you have to debug in the browser because weird browser interactions, we're a long ways from that. I wouldn't touch it for like front end web coding, actual like DOM interaction coding three to five years. I don't see it happening any faster than that. Huh. In a VDOM implementation, I wonder if you even have to like unwrap the VDOM or if you can just diff array buffers. I mean, the question is, will it be actual VDOM implementation or something like Glimmer? Or there's actually a, co- a number of architectures it could be. I actually think Glimmer is a very promising architecture for that type of an app. That's what Ember uses, right? Yeah, yeah. Glimmer is the Ember engine. Very cool. I'm excited to see where this goes. I am as well. Well, Carl, thanks for being on the show today. This is fascinating stuff. I'm uh, pretty stoked about this. Seeing where it's come from and watching it through the years has been really neat and watching where it's going today with like the WASI and what they kind of hope to be able to produce with it is just fascinating. And once <laughs> once it's here, it'll be nice to have plugins that'll run, run everywhere, right? Yes. I'm very excited about like the future and what it'll mean, especially like outside the browser. I think that having a dedicated portable runtime is yeah. the potential to realize the original vision of the Java that right once run anywhere. Do I really think that's going to happen? Maybe, but like we have a second go at it and we're 20 years later. Why not? Right. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks again to Carl for coming on. And uh, until next time, stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, And of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on.